Welcome to Let's with Amplify, where we have lively entrepreneurial talks focused on helping you grow your business through sound financial strategy. Here are your hosts, Jamie L. Smith and Jesse Ferguson. Welcome to Let's, lively entrepreneurial talks with Amplify. Today we're talking about startups and the reason that we get to start our conversation about startups is that we are celebrating five years of incorporation. So five years ago, we were a startup too, and we still help startups on occasion, though many times the companies that decide to invest in financial strategy with us are in the scale-up and growth stage in a few years past those early, early days. But it's exciting, and it's a topic we wanted to address. So, Jesse, five years. How does it feel to be an entrepreneur for five years? It feels like a startup. Still feels like a startup, like it was yesterday. Yep. <laughs> it does feel like it's gone by fast. But in the meantime, we've hit a pandemic, hopefully gotten through that. And uh, we've got 40 people on staff. Did you expect that to happen within five years, the pandemic or the 40 people? Um, yeah, I would say we expected that. That was in the plans. <laughs> if the pandemic was in the plans, we would be no, we'd be retired pandemic, by now. Employees, I guess. So, for those of us that don't know the Amplify story, Jesse, you want to tell your version, and then I'll correct it and fix it after. Well, the official story, or the <laughs> unofficial story. I mean, I think, like most entrepreneurs, um, you know, you get an idea, you think there's a market need, and you. Do some plans and take the leap of faith. Um, so the story really, in my mind, started, uh, um, well, probably started for me when I was at Graph. And uh, I remember that was definitely not a growth business. I would say it was a shrinking business. And um, when I started, it was, you know, not only on the verge of bankruptcy, but in terms of just process and technology was in rough shape. And so that took up a lot of my time for probably 18 months. But after that point, uh, you know, because we didn't have the capital to actually grow, it became actually quite routine and a little bit boring almost. And uh, I remember walking in the office one week in the middle of the summer thinking to myself, Man, this company doesn't need me here for more than a couple of days a week. Sure would be cool if I, they could have, uh, you know, my, if we could, like, from a financial standpoint, it'd be great if I could just show up two days a week and they could afford me two days a week and they'd have to pay me two days a week. Even though, you know, that wasn't in my cards, I thought it was probably the right thing for, uh, for the client at the time. And then uh, fast forward... Um, you know, we got that great idea at, at Deloitte, where we were both working at the time. And then, for one reason or another, um, did some business cases, realized that probably the business model wasn't the right thing for Deloitte, but, you know, still was worth pursuing. And, and that's when uh, the idea came to fruition, at least, and you know, it still looks somewhat similar to what it did in those days, but it's definitely different, right? Absolutely. So 
for those that don't know all the history, Jesse and I met at Deloitte and uh, we're still huge fans of our alumni. We learned uh, consulting, the how to approach consulting and projects and teamwork. We learned sales, everything we know about sales we learned at Deloitte. And uh, we're still happy to recommend them when they're the right fit. Price, pricing. Pricing, negotiations. Yeah, negotiations. Yeah, Let's endless learn. amount of learning from our alumni. So we couldn't be prouder yep. or more grateful of the opportunities that we've had at all of our previous jobs. But but specials place in our heart because we met at Deloitte. And, and uh, they, they actually assigned Jesse and I the opportunity to do the business case that Jesse was mentioning with the business process solutions. I think that's what it was called, right? BPS. Yep. And so we spent a good six to eight months where we had the international leader of BPS come to Calgary, spent a day with us. Uh, One of the people on the team went to Mexico for a week to the BPS retreat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, and we did a ton of research, well-funded, well um, well done research to come up with a business case as to whether BPS was right for Deloitte. And at that time, Jesse and I concluded that it was not right for Deloitte because we felt that their core competencies and their target market was large enterprise business, which it was at the time. I think they've sub- I think they have gone into it, but at the large market. At the large yeah. market, yeah. yeah. And, and a it lot makes of, sense. And a lot of the foreign countries that were finding yeah. success yeah. – they were doing fractional CFO or full outsourcing of accounting to companies like as big as an Enbridge or a Google or what have you. So that's, but we weren't sure that in Canada that the appetite to fully outsource at the enterprise level was there. Mm. So we had suggested that it wasn't the right business plan for Deloitte. They gave us, if you remember, a soft no. They never, ever said no uh, because they knew we were passionate and excited, even though our recommendation was a no. And then uh, rewind or fast forward a bit, and that is basically our starting business plan. And um, we left in, on amazing terms, as mentioned, with a lot of gratitude and a lot of um, a lot of great relationships. But essentially, Amplify's business plan was that BPS business plan, by and large. Yeah, and I seem to think, uh, from what I remember, there was a a big sticking point was like legalities. I think. Independence, yes. Independence. Because if you remember, a well-known company that we won't name, you know, that's right. So we had sold a BPS project to a company that every single one of our listeners would know of, but we won't name it. And where (laughs) Jesse especially got sensitive, I remember, was this independence issue. Because basically you couldn't do the job of a controller or CFO because of all the independence restrictions with us being auditors and tax professionals at a time and just the way that the setup of Deloitte was and and many accounting firms actually, we still run into that being a differentiator at Amplify for us and what helps us win. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was a big, uh, something so simple actually was was a major, ends up being a really big competitive advantage down the road if you're willing to take on the risk. That's right, which a lot aren't. Which most aren't. Yeah, but often because of compliance and independence um, restrictions that they couldn't, even if they wanted to. Which were, we are not in the games of audit and tax, largely for those reasons. So, you know, that's, I always say that there's not one straw that breaks a camel's back, as the saying goes. And 
you know, that's one story of, of how Amplify started, or actually two, because you mentioned the graph one. Um, and there's many, many others. One of my other favorites was I was on a call with a leading partner at Deloitte, and for the first time ever, we were going through a budget with quite a bit of detail. I don't know if you remember this. I was on the call with him, and, you know, he's I, not real numbers, but you know, 200,000 was based on this new product we were doing for uh, digital audits or something like that. And then, you know, 3 million was based on technical accounting projects to enterprise clients. And then 4 million was this and whatever the numbers are, right? And they all added up and they made a ton of sense. And the analysis was there, the marketing strategy, how we were going to, uh, how we were going to approach the market and sell it all made sense. And so then I, I said to him, I'm like, well, what about this last million? And that, that was the real number, a million, those other numbers I was making up. I said, buddy, what about that last million? And he said to me, well, Jamie, that's, that, we did some analysis, and we believe that based on yours, your network and Jesse's network and the work that you do selling within the community, that that million is based on you and Jesse selling. And I'm like, so it's not allocated to any of these other products or services that we're selling. You just think me and Jesse can randomly sell a million. Oh, yeah. No, we've got, we've got lots of support, lots of analysis. We're confident in that last million. And I'm like, so you think I can sell a million just with Jesse? And he's like, absolutely. And I remember I hung up the phone. And funny enough, I didn't call you first. I called my mom. <laughs> and I was like, mom, this dude, he's really smart. And, and he's got really smart people behind him. And he thinks that me and that Jesse that I've told you about can sell a million dollars. And she's like, oh, Jamie, you don't want to quit your job. You don't want to quit your job. Don't do it. And I was like, I'm calling Jesse right now. Um, so do you remember that story? It's one of my favorites because all this analysis behind that million bucks. Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, there's, I mean, there was lots of... Um, I think supporting that, we actually did analysis on that million, though, didn't we? Yeah, to see what we'd already sold. Yes. Yeah. Which supported his a million. Yeah. Actually, no, it didn't. It was less. It was quite a bit less. Yeah. But when you, the way we did the analysis, it, well. But that that was yeah. actuals without forecast. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess he probably wasn't far off. Well, he wasn't because in our first fiscal year, we broke that million, which less than 3% of businesses do. Yeah, that's true. There so actually, I would hire those analysis any day because they seem to be good. Yeah. <laughs> let's yeah, let's, he was, he was let's find really, out if they're still really there. <laughs> if yeah. they want to come work for us. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's funny, you know, like in the, I think every entrepreneur has like their own journey. I, I, most most people I come across, especially the, the I'll call it non-accountant entrepreneurs, they mostly do it because they don't want a boss, and probably a lot of times make bad employees. Um, and I've heard that from lots of business owners that I'm friends with. That uh, you know they're great business owners but horrible employees. And uh, yeah, it's interesting when you hear that. I I'd certainly don't really relate I think um, I think we you can you can do either and and to be honest I probably had we've at times you feel like you had more freedom as an employee than you do now right 
because you're you now you work for your employees basically. Exactly. You work for, now we have 40 employees that we work for, yeah. 70 clients we work for, yeah. and then the worst boss on earth, which is you. Oh, I thought or, or vice versa. <laughs> I'm teasing. We're great bosses except maybe to each other. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's been interesting ride for sure. For sure. Um, so Jesse and I made the decision in May of 2018 to incorporate. And at the end of that month, we uh, put in our, that paperwork and had the opportunity to become a corporation. But our intention was to um, to have a great summer with our former employer and do great work and, and contribute to that team and then leave in around in about October-ish. And then... Um, well, I think we're planning on doing a lot of planning. Yes, in our, in our summer meant. spare time. Yeah, whatever that meant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so then what happened was I, uh, I ran into a friend, a friend that I originally met at a baby class when I was pregnant with my first child and had, pre- and had subsequently had business conversations with over the years. I ran into him at a, a suburb fast food joint grabbing supper on my way home from work one day. And I said to him, I'm like, Dave, I'm finally doing it. I've actually incorporated. I'm starting a business. It's really similar to the one that you thought about starting and that we talked about. And so um, back in the day, probably around the same time that Jesse was sitting at Graph thinking about fractional CFOs and not using what words to describe it or, or what have you, I was having conversations with this Dave about a similar business line and uh, he was pushing me at the time I was at PwC, pushing me to quit PwC and either be employed by him or co-own uh, a firm with him that that it looks a lot like Amplify, to be honest. Uh, and he, it was his idea that he brought to me. And I thought about it, but at the time, I had never even worked properly in uh, industries. I, I had been at Viterra in the accounting policy and M&A um, research group, but I was not ever had been a controller CFO. So I didn't have the courage. I didn't have the confidence. And I was like, Dave, I love this. This could be an amazing career for me. I think I would enjoy it, but I don't think I'm controller or CFO material. And I, and I very quickly after those conversations with Dave became a controller and, and got finance leader experience. But um, so I ran into him randomly in a fast food joint within days of incorporating. And I, and I was excited. And I told him like, Dave, funny enough, I have a business partner. I'm starting a business. It's almost the same one that you tried to pitch me however many years ago. And he's like, that is so crazy, Jamie, because my client that I'm on literally approved a budget for me to get proper support in accounting and finance this week. And so uh, Dave and I discussed and he wanted me to come in and lead the accounting and finance because he was a he was the CFO, but he was a CFA CFO. So he really didn't have the skill sets or or passion for the accounting and the finance, but he was great at raising money and reorgs and banking and that type of thing. So I came in to be a finance leader with him and he was keeping the CFO title. And so we made the decision, which was a really hard decision for me to actually quit Deloitte quite a bit earlier than we originally planned. And so that was awkward, obviously, because I quit, looked independent, but reality was we were quitting together, but we weren't ready for Jesse to quit. His wife was uh, also doing her fellowship exam, if you recall, and, and it just... Uh, the fall was our original plan for a reason. So I ended up quitting, gave six weeks notice and started with our first Amplify client, Bear Hill. 
Um, and we started at the end of June, first client. And uh, between June and October, which was our uh, official launch when, when Jesse came on board, I did the Bear Hill. And within a week of being at Bear Hill, Dave had an opportunity that he needed to actually quit Bear Hill. So I immediately became CFO and replaced uh, the and launched the controller role with my successor, Stu, who's now the CFO of that original client. And so we had the opportunity to have a client right off the bat, which was exciting, uh, but was also scary um, for sure, because all of a sudden I was quitting early and I don't think we felt ready. But this is the thing about business, which we can talk about our suggestions for anybody that's an aspiring entrepreneur in a minute here. Sometimes you have to be responsive. You can have all the plans in the world. And we had a plan, a great plan, October, which is still the plan I'd set today if we were to go back. But then you get an opportunity and you need to be responsive. And thank God we did because that was a great, it remains a great relationship. And we're even shareholders of Bear Hill at, at Amplify. And, and you know, it was a, it was a perfect launch to Amplify, which ran, was a fast food run-in. So mm. it's awesome. Yeah. Anything else you want to remind people about for the story of Amplify before we start talking about what we would do different or what we've learned or want to suggest to other entrepreneurs that are thinking about these big steps? Um, no, I don't think so. I think there was a lot of planning that went into it, but um, it was pretty deliberate, I would say. Um, but yeah, lots changed, but certainly not the core concepts. Totally. I can remember like literally specific places where we were when we were not quite committed yet. I can remember having a hard conversation at the Starbucks and Bankers Hall. Earls, remember when we were with Elena and Dan? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, Craft in Toronto. Okay. What was that one about? I think that was my Talking ourselves out of it. <laughs> no, me talking you into it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, actually. But I do remember those conversations for sure. Yeah. It wasn't an easy decision. Uh, I think it was inevitable. Really? Yeah. I don't think it was. It was inevitable. But, um, but yeah, I, you know, I... I just think there was I think the market opportunity was too good and I think at Deloitte you know and, and it proved out to be wrong I mean I remember saying at the time like I don't understand why Deloitte is serving all these tiny little clients given how global and large they are and and what they sold off to that book of business to M&P like two years later maybe yeah something like that it wasn't that long so i mean from that perspective you know it was definitely the right play so yeah i think it was inevitable i just don't think <clears throat> at least for me um working with larger corporates was you know something that brought me enough juice to get out of bed in the morning so Maybe for you, you're pretty good at that size of client. But I think that would have got old for you as well. So, Yeah, I mean, going into the small, medium business space was new to me. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and I can't 
say that I ever, ever regret it. In fact, if I was to say the two times in my life that I have questioned whether I should be an entrepreneur, there's only been two. One was when COVID was absolutely nuts and we had no idea what was going on. And I remember thinking to myself, I have never in my life held a job that would have been at all in threat from this pandemic. And here I am as an entrepreneur and the CFO of a hospitality client, just having laid off 306 people mm. and thinking, wow, my timing sucks. <laughs> now, of course, in the end, knock on wood, and with all the respect to the people that suffered, COVID just accelerated our business and just absolutely helped and proved why financial strategy matters and why what we do matters. So, you know, it's been a, it was a blessing and it, we would not be as big, I don't think, if we hadn't had that external event uh, help, help show the value of what we do. But at the time, like that first month, March, oh wow. So that was my one moment. But though it lasted five minutes. And then uh, probably when I was stuck in Winnipeg on my way back from the Quebec FEI conference this past, uh, this past month or two ago, uh, when I had a horrible, um, horrible, horrible travel experience, and just that guilt and that feeling as an entrepreneur of like wasting money and wasting time. And don't get me wrong, I was never the type of employee that would ever have wasted any corporation's money. I was always conservative and diligent. But you know, there's a big difference between feeling like you're wasting time and money that's Jesse's and, you know, my family's and our employees versus a company that's obviously can more than afford it. And, and Amplify can afford it, don't get me wrong, but it just was a feeling of like, did I make a bad decision? Am I, uh, am I causing harm or harsh to, to our people, right? And that and kind of goes back to what you're saying before is that you're accountable to so many more people as an entrepreneur, or at least that's my experience and feeling. And so I did have a moment where I was like, it sure would be nice if, if one of those big corporations that used to employ me was paying for this hassle. You must have been <laughs> flying on private jets or something. No, I was never. I never even got upgraded, <laughs> unlike you. They didn't send me to Columbia. Yeah. They're too worried I'd get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so today we're going to talk about things we wish we knew, and things that we'd want to s tell entrepreneurs. And obviously, uh, maybe too close to home. Jesse, please respect the fact that we picked the topics a couple months ago before I knew that this would be maybe a little bit more heated of a conversation than, uh, than I expected because we've got some entrepreneurs in our, in our landscape and world right now that are, uh, you know, giving us emotional uh, reactions. But... Every day we get an opportunity to talk to aspiring entrepreneurs and, you know, whether they reach out cold on LinkedIn or whether they're uh, connected through our network or otherwise, we, you know, we're humbled by the opportunity to talk to people about what it means to be an entrepreneur, what they should consider and, and you know, whether or not they should do it. And I always look at it as an opportunity to be very candid. And if I scare them out of it, I think that's success. And if I inspire them and make them take the leap, I think that's success. And both extremes and, and everything that lands in the middle, I think is uh, important. But having real, transparent, true conversations about what it means to be an entrepreneur. And despite the fact that, you know, we work with businesses from pre-revenue startup all the way to, I think our biggest finance leader client is at 90 million revenue and our biggest 
well, we also have enterprise clients, some of the biggest in town in recruiting. And then NetSuite, what would be the highest revenue client that we have there? Probably close to 100 million or more, maybe. Mm, Maybe. Anyways, big big diversity. What they all have in common is that they're growth businesses. But funny enough, even when they're theoretically defined as scale up, which means that they're investing in their processes and their people and their technology and trying to be profitable, that's how I would define a scale up business, they still are experiencing a lot of the same pains and concerns that a startup does. So I think this conversation, if you're not a startup and you've been in business for three to five years, will still have a lot of relevance and hopefully take some tangible ideas away because we're going to talk about what we've experienced at Amplify, but also what we see with our clients. So, you know, what are what are the main things that you would tell someone? If I came to you, Jesse, and said, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to start a business. I want, I'm really, really good at selling and I want to start a fractional sales company, which is a hot topic right now. Sure. You know, what are the things you're going to tell me to think about? What are the things that you'd warn me of uh, or that you wish you knew? I think most most people do a good job kind of, you know, at least understanding the market that they want to sell into. I think they do a good job at, um, I guess, what type of service or product they want to sell, etc., I think where most people really fall down is on the executional side. And I think that in my in my view, like in order to get past that million dollars, unless you have a ton of money just that you can, you know, sink into these three areas right out of the gates and lose a bunch of money, which, you know, if it's a good enough idea and someone might actually invest in that, then that that's not a... That's not necessarily a bad option either, I guess, but uh, it's kind of the three-legged stool approach where every business needs, you know, core competencies in operations, finance and accounting, and uh, sales. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes, you know, it's pretty tough to find one person that's going to... have three of the all three of those skill sets so oftentimes you see partnerships form because of that where each founder kind of plays a role in that one of those three disciplines or two of those three disciplines etc so um i think it's something that uh most clients uh, that that really never get off the ground um you know struggle with especially operations like the execution yeah yeah, they they just spend their wheels on oper- on ex on poor execution. And so, if we think about like the EOS and traction model, yep. they they put people into boxes, and there's occasions that you and I get a bit sensitive about it because we're maybe n- unique or a little different in the sense that we both play quite a bit of the visionary role, as EOS would describe it, and then quite a bit of the integrator role. Yep. And uh, so. But conceptually, uh, it makes a lot of sense understanding the differences. And I think um, in a lot of cases, people do kind of fall black and white into visionary integrator. I think you and I are unique because we we literally have a diagram. We could share it as part of this podcast. It's actually crazy how 
even of a split we are in terms of what we each take care of from a visionary integrator perspective. But I don't think that's the norm. No. With most of our clients, it's pretty clear who would be labeled the visionary and who would be labeled integrator. And there would be no offense taken to, to those labels in most cases either. It's just sometimes. Like with your clients, you find that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I this mean, guy, all he does is have ideas. <laughs> everyone resents him for his, all his ideas. Yeah. Or all oh, this guy, this guy has no ideas. All he cares about is getting stuff done, right? Yeah. So, but, I mean. So the offense is more they, that the other side even matters. <laughs> yeah, right. I think once they they kind of understand the neither works without each other, right? Like, they're both valuable. And... You know, I think, and I, and even with regards to like, you know, the three-legged stool, I like to say, like, not all three legs are equally as important at every moment, right? So, like, you know, if you're starting a business from scratch and you have zero revenue, I would argue the accounting and finance piece probably doesn't matter. <laughs> Because you have nothing to account for. <laughs> right. So, and operations probably doesn't matter either. Right. Now, if you hit the ground running and have a ton of sales, um, you know, operations probably will matter very quickly. And if you sell too much, I would argue sales won't matter anymore because you can't execute on the stuff you've already sold. And obviously, Finance will become important when you start hiring employees and you can't pay anyone. So at some point that will become kind of a burning fire. And I, I find as as the as the tide lifts, you know, it shifts from from uh, priority shift from day to day, week to week, month to month. And being able to kind of recognize when to put pedals down and take pedals up is I think crucial in hitting the right momentum and obviously there's risk tolerance within that and you know because some would argue if they have crazy risk tolerance they just say hire a bunch of people to take care of it and put the pedal down at all times which isn't not necessarily I don't know it's not a bad strategy if you can finance it if you can finance it yeah most people probably can once they've got scalable, but then you're looking at, you know, outside people telling you what to do, <laughs> right? Which going back to the type of people that become entrepreneurs might not work. Might not work. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of that, uh, yeah, definitely doesn't work for me. You know, having people tell you you need to do something to get hit their numbers, it's like, why do I care about your numbers? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you gave me all that money. Yeah, exactly. So let's dive a bit into sales because our startup ebook talks quite a bit about it. And it's certainly one that I completely agree with. And I think, you know, I've, I've always said, you know, not to speak in absolutes, but to some degree, this one is an absolute. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what kind of business you're starting. You need to be able to sell it. And the ability to hire someone to sell your business as a startup is, is pretty limited. Now, 
as you just alluded to, you know, with with a certain level of financing and willing to leverage and give up control, maybe, maybe. But by and large, very few companies can expect to delegate and hire out their sales. It's going to almost always have to be a founder to begin with. Now, certainly one option is to partner with someone who can sell well, and then you don't have to. That's that's a great option, and that that goes back to that visionary integrator. Often the visionary is an, is a seller, um, and the integrator maybe isn't, but they're both absolutely 50-50 co-founders or, or what have you. But generally speaking, a founder is going to have to sell and or one of the founders is going to have to sell. So, you know, when you are passionate about marketing or you're passionate about manufacturing or you're passionate about what this app can do, but you don't want to sell, well, that's a ceiling that's maybe a ceiling to break the decision. And my personal story is my husband was very entrepreneurial when I met him. He was uh, he was running some tech businesses on the side. He did real estate and he loved it. And he really defined himself as, as an entrepreneur. When we moved to Bermuda and I was working at PwC and Audit, we decided to invest in him being an entrepreneur. So he did not look for a job or get a job. And he developed this software and it was an incredible software and it worked and it was way, uh, way before its time and it, and it worked. And so then he showed it to me and the, the minimum viable product was practically a finished product. It was awesome. And I was like, okay, JD, now you got to go out and sell it. Within the same week of realizing now I have to go sell it, he started applying for jobs and he's never ever brought up the idea of being an entrepreneur since so you know within our household sales and the recognition that in order to be an entrepreneur you have to sell uh you know it we had um we had that moment and it was a great moment because he he did it he learned and then he made a decision and uh and he's been an employee ever since and a happy one and 15 years at his current company but uh, some people that I talk to, when I sit down with them about becoming an entrepreneur and we talk about how you have to sell, they're like, they'll try and like work around it. I'm like, no, at the end of the day, like it is pretty much impossible to start a company, own a company and not sell. So if selling isn't something you're excited about, then maybe you don't want to be an entrepreneur. Or if selling something that makes you uncomfortable and you feel uneducated or untrained on it, maybe you need to take a step in the interim to learn it and get that confidence, which is kind of what we did with Deloitte, right? And and actually one of the big reasons I went to Deloitte was to learn selling and learn consulting. And um, I'm not sure if that's your story as well, but without question, we learned it there. And I don't know if I could have started a business having not had confidence in sales. So, you know, what do you tell them about sales, Jesse? Do you disagree with anything I just said? Yeah. No, I don't disagree. I think I don't. Uh, you know, selling is interesting. Like, are you speaking to like sell the product or sell the service? Is that what you mean? I think it's much bigger. No, yes, uh, yes, and yes, but also selling the vision, the purpose, yeah, the values, I, I, the story, the brand. Like, yeah, like I, so I, many different ways of selling. Like, I, I, I think, I think anyone. I think most people can sell the the product or service, right? Like, I think a lot of people can if given the opportunity or um, what have you. Like, 
I don't think that that's necessarily where people fall down. I think it's like selling the idea, selling the 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 vision, selling you know almost that like take a chance on us, right? Like maybe it's the confidence factor. I don't know what it is, but I think a lot of people struggle to like get people to because you know when you're when you're starting out, you have no brand. Right? Like, who have you worked with? Nobody. <laughs> Can you give us some qualifications? We don't have any. Can you trust us? <laughs> we won't screw it up, right? Like, how many have clients, how many clients did we have like that in the, in the first couple of years, right? Just trust us, right? And that's, that is a, con, that is, I think a lot of people struggle at that, right? Like, they can't make a convincing argument why you should take a chance on us. I think that's where most startups really just never get over that hump to get that momentum. Because now it's like, well, everyone can sell and amplify, right? (laughs) Can they? Well, I I, I don't think they'd be embarrassed, too. I don't think they would. Like, it's, it's, yeah, like, they... Can they close? Like, do they have the specific? Are they good at it, etc.? Probably not. Not everyone. But like, it wouldn't. I, I, you know, when you're at Deloitte, like, you just talk about Deloitte. People know who Deloitte is. Oh, like, you know, oh, you're in. Ta- you do tax work. Oh, okay. Well, they're not saying like, who are you? Are you good at tax? No, they're just saying like. Oh, you work for Dolly. You must be good at tax. You could be terrible at tax, but, right? Yeah. So, and I think, you know, when you look at, like, um, product businesses, it's it's trust and, like, how do you get over that hurdle? And how do you convince someone to take a leap of faith on you? And, you know, like, I've seen... Uh, a few interviews from like uh, Dragon's Den people and one of the things that struck me I don't know which one it was but they they said at the end of the day we're actually not really investing in these companies we're investing in the people behind them yeah right and I I think that's very true I don't know how many times you come across someone with a what could be a great idea we met lots of people they well-intentioned seem very bright good idea but yet kind of something's off right and you're like Man, i don't think that they're gonna make it and then two years later you see that they have a new job as an employee of some some other company and you're like well, i guess they didn't make it right just fine yeah there's many most that people don't hardly even launch from the outside perspective, I mean, internally, they probably feel like they gave it their best go and right. and yeah. did everything they could. But from the outside, it seems like they didn't even launch because their story isn't out there and doesn't get heard or known. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know, why, you know, why. I think another thing that I think most services businesses do really well that that end up making it out of that startup phase, like. They're very iterative, right? Like, they have an idea, but they're not, like, they're not so mirrored to exactly what the end state is. They're willing to 
you know, I guess, you know, adapt within, you know, we used to sell a fractional CFO for one day a month. One day a quarter, you mean? One day a quarter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eight hours a month. Yeah. I remember the CFO says, how am I supposed to do this? Don't worry about it. Just go do it. Don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> well, which brings us to like the second point that I always raise with entrepreneurs and is in our startup ebook is that minimum viable product. Sure. So it's exactly what you're talking about is, you know, it's it, in so many entrepreneurs I see really paralyzed with perfection, right? And they're trying to get everything perfect. And of course, the classic cases are technology. Everyone has heard about the technology where you try and come up with the perfect app with all the features that you think matter and you spend all your money below every budget you have, then you go to market and you find out that what really matters to the customer wasn't even on your radar. And the thing that you put, you know, 300,000 into developing never gets used, right? And, uh, and so there's all these surprises and how do you go to market with something less than perfect? And Jesse, we've talked about like the leave a penny on the table concept type of things and never making money off your first client. So let's, let's explore that a bit more. Um, you know, what, if, what did we do right or what did we learn as entrepreneurs that's applicable to other clients when it comes to this? I mean, don't look at gross margins in the early days, right? Look, you know, that, 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 that's important down the road, but out of the gates, it's, it's irrelevant, right? Feedback is what is matters, right? Good, bad, and ugly. That will tell you if you're on, market response will tell you if you're on the right track or, or not, right? Um, and then pivot quickly. Absolutely. And if, you, if you've perfected it too much, I think human nature is to, to have ego around that, right? And your ability to pivot and hear feedback when you've invested too much time, money, or effort into perfecting something, you just it closes you off. Versus if you're a little bit less confident, a bit more nimble with the product or service, well, then when you hear the feedback, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Or I didn't think about that. Or I didn't get to that yet. And you're just more open to hearing it and really reacting to it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a case, too, where where people want to be right versus want to actually have success right and so they probably don't really want to hear that they're maybe their original idea isn't right they're off track they're off track they don't want to hear it and so they keep driving down the road that they want to be on not what the road they should be on yeah absolutely you you see that a lot in the early days you know you give especially as an advisor you see that a lot where you know, you give advice and you can tell the ones that truly want the advice to make changes because they're, they just listen differently. I don't know what it is versus the, the startup that's like seeking feedback almost to like validate what they already know. And if you tell them what something that goes against that kind of preconceived notion, like they're almost mad. And they dig their heels in more. Yeah, they all start arguing. Yeah. Why you're wrong. 
instead of saying, hmm, maybe I need, maybe this is a different perspective. Maybe there's something here. Maybe there's not, but I should probably explore it before I just completely write it off as nothing. Yeah. One of my biggest surprises over the last five years was how challenging it was for us to launch accounting services. So we made the decision maybe two years in or not quite to allow our clients to get accounting services, bookkeeping essentially, uh, through Amplify. And so about 50% of our finance leader clients were the whole accounting department. So we, we provide the CFO level, the controller, and the bookkeeper level. And then the other 50% or so, we only have the executive role, which is usually the CFO role. Um, but when we launched accounting services, which was not part of our original package, wow, it was tough. Like, And, you know, one would assume that bookkeeping is a simple service and maybe CFO is a complex service, but we found it much easier to launch CFO than accounting services. And I think, and, and wow, we had to pivot. We had to adjust to market feedback so much when it comes to that. And now I was literally on the on a call with Ian just a few minutes ago before this podcast. And just, it's just incredible how smooth our accounting services operates now under Ian. And, and thank you to Tara and to you and to me for all the efforts and the pain to get it there. Mm-hmm. But Ian's just got it running so smooth now. And so I think, you know, when we talk about the minimum viable product and, and listening to feedback, that that's one that comes to mind. And if you remember the first time we launched accounting services was actually under an affiliate partnership. It was a horrible failure, if you'll recall. One of, one of my good friends, great person, but terrible business, uh, business move on our part at Amplify, that's for sure. And I remember one of the reasons that, that she struggled to win and she struggled to succeed was exactly what you just mentioned about being focused on gross margin. And I remember having the conversation with her of like, it doesn't matter that we're not going to make money. Like we need to get this done. We need to give quality. We need to do it right. And her pushing back, well, we only sold X number of hours and I've already doubled that. I'm like, it's your first client. It doesn't matter. Like we don't, we're not here to make money. We need to get this right. And frankly, the reason it's taking us more hours than what we sold is because they're all our reasons. Like we scoped it wrong. We've made mistakes. We we're learning here. And so I'm a big believer that, hey, if you can get paid to learn, that's incredible. And the fact that you're not making a gross margin, that's not the point. I mean, you could be learning without any clients and without any revenue, Mm -hmm. or you could learn with clients, with revenue, with feedback, and not making money. But eventually, all of that adds up to making money quicker. And that's been our experience. We certainly did not make money off of any of our first clients. And yet they're still some of our favorite people and we have great relationship with them. And I think we owe them more than they owe us. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Too many look for profit first, as you mentioned. So another thing that goes into your operations and your accounting um, stool uh, leg analogy that I always bring, and it's also in our startup book is the revenue models. And so I always think, you know, I went for a, a coffee with, with one of our business affiliates, Kevin 
when we were still exploring the idea of launching and and the advice he gave me was that we should uh, we should charge on a retainer base. And I remember that resonating with me because back in my Deloitte days, I literally would be, I would walk the 10 minutes to my car, be in the car, and someone would cancel a meeting on me. And of course, you know, they were big million dollar mandates. So that client had the right and the privilege to cancel on me at the last minute. But as you can appreciate, that time is is like fruit on a tree, right? Like it rots, it falls, and it dies. And so, you know, having a last minute cancellation like that is just time dying and rotting, which has a real cost to the business. And so when we were told to do retainer because because otherwise people would cancel last minute, disrespect your time, um, question the value or the service or what have you, it, it really resonated with me because I knew I had experienced major issues at Deloitte of which they could afford it and the mandates were big enough that it was kind of built into the pricing scheme. But it made sense to me and, and we have been a retainer-based business since. And so that's one example of looking at your revenue models, thinking about how you're bringing in revenue, how you're bringing in cash. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't really look at that finance accounting side and that operations side and think about you know, how can we make how can we make money and have cash to grow and, and package this accordingly? And obviously the trendiest thing these days is uh, software as a service or SaaS or, or subscriptions, which is a great example of taking any operation or any service or product and turning it into a reoccurring annuity revenue, which is great. And it really does make businesses thrive and, and makes a huge difference. And so that's a great example of, of this consideration, but, what are your thoughts on on that revenue models and how operations and accounting and finance integrates there? I think it's very obviously industry specific in terms of revenue models. Um, I think I think you know it's interesting because like I've had this discussion recently with some other services companies that are in consulting effectively and. They used to be on uh, kind of retainer flat fee, I would call it, versus, you know. Or value-based billing. Yeah, value-based billing. That's a big discussion whether you should be charging hours versus um, versus, uh, value-based billing. And uh, I think you can do both. I think... I think the more you can commoditize your service into a simple, digestible, easy way to, uh, it'll be easier to scale, sell, right? Versus complicated uh, pricing, uh, you know, based on hours, et cetera, et cetera, um, is, uh, is, you know, requires just more senior type of salespeople involved and and probably operational people. But you got to be willing to lose some money too, right? Like I know when we were starting our implementations, you know, we were spending tons of time building out these project plans to try and create a price ultimately. And... It was taking us 
weeks to come up with this pricing and it's like slowing our sales team down and at the end of the day was a guess anyways it's like this could be easier so we've come up with a very simple way to price our implementations and and then we just monitor it in terms of you know is is the mod the pricing model we have built is it are the assumptions we've made correct and only actual data gives us that but problem is it takes a while to get that actual data because these implementations take so long you know four five six months but you know i think i think we're on the right track and you know oftentimes i find especially in the early stages companies want to just set a price and kind of move on right versus actually explore pricing how can we be how can we use it as a differentiator against our competition that to me is the number one thing because i think i think you've done right um you know and you understand how your competitors are pricing and you do it differently and it actually resonates with clients man that can be your secret sauce all day long but if you just want to co- replicate and copy your competitors, then you've missed a big, big opportunity, I think. So, you know, I think we, we use a lot of different pricing models now compared to the early days. But, you know, but you better have the systems, too, to support that if you're going to do it. And you better have a good philosophy on if you're going to charge for hours, right, you better understand what's the strategy there and you can do both and still win and make money right and there is i mean there's a psychology to pricing for sure right and it's a it's a kind of a goldilocks moment right you don't want to be you don't want the porridge to be too hot you don't want to be too cold just has to be just right and and it's funny because you know i know the last time we raised our prices in finance leader it was very clear that it it assisted our credibility and our trust and it helped us win. Mm-hmm. And yet we were so cautious and so hesitant to raise our prices. And when we did, it just it gave confidence to our client and we clients and we won far more. Now having said that, we did have some early clients that as we market adjusted them, we also recognized, you know, you're not really a growth business, you're more a lifestyle business. And so our value proposition isn't there for lifestyle businesses necessarily. And so, you know, we had great transitions where they've moved to more bookkeepers because they don't, they don't need the same level of strategic help that we offer. But, um, but those it's pricing is something I would say you don't set it and forget it. No, absolutely not. And the market's changing. Your services are changing your brand, your value proposition changes internally but even if you are, are static in some way, the external market is changing rapidly. And obviously right now with inflation, everything else, it's probably changing more than it ever has. But it always is changing. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, it, and pricing should align with kind of like position, market positioning as well, right? So, you know, what are you? Right. And you might not be what you want to be in the early days, but once you're there, yes, exactly. Yeah. You might, 
have an idea what you are or who you think you're going to be, what are you, right? So, you know, if you're you're a reputable brand that's positioned in, you know, as kind of high-end, then, yeah, you can take a different pricing strategy than someone who has a zero brand and may think they're high-end, but they're not based on the people they have on their team delivering those services. Yeah. And, you know, you have to be honest with what you are at the time. And, you know, as you as you grow and evolve, then you can grow and evolve your pricing strategies along with it, right? Absolutely. I think we've done that a lot. For sure, for sure. It is, there's been lots of learning in this area. Yeah, yeah, a lot of learning. So we've been discussing startups, the story of Amplify. Uh, We reviewed sales, accounting, and ops, that stool that Jesse finally likes to look at, or he always has to bring orange charts into every podcast, right? Um, which is kind of what the same idea. And our e- startup ebook, which talks about sales, minimum viable product and revenue models. So we invite listeners to learn more through the ebook, which you can download. And to continue that conversation, let's wrap up just with like the biggest surprise or what you wish you knew, Jesse, as an entrepreneur. What is that one thing that if we could go back and, uh, and tell Jesse in say April or May of 2018 before you made that final decision? What do you wish you knew? I'd say the two biggest things would be um, probably, you know, my lack of appreciation for marketing, brand, um, and the power of that when you get it right. And then I'd say probably, I don't know, people, <laughs> how complicated it is. You think it's going to be easier when you get more people to help, uh, you know, help grow the organization, but, you know, it it certainly adds horsepower, which sometimes makes it a lot more complicated. And, uh, you know, I can understand why when we're working at Deloitte and you're trying to seek change in a very large organization how almost daunting and impossible that seemed and really is right you know you think about government and how how do they change this tough you know so the more people you have the more ingrained people get and the more people so it's yeah people are Probably the biggest thing that's shocking on, not shocking, but surprising on how how different my perspective was then versus now. And you? It's a tough one. I think if I were to go back and talk to myself, I would put a better USA in. (laughs) Better USA. (laughs) (laughs) No, Jesse, I would definitely remind myself that I had the right business partner don't worry um what I might what I might tell myself is that you know when you when you get when you're ready and you have the courage to be a leader and not be in the business that that it'll pay off because I think that my biggest surprise was 
when I stopped working directly with clients, that was scary. Uh, that was my scary. Should have done it quicker. In some ways, right? Yeah. And, you know. How in, long did clients too long? Yeah, for sure. we did. And so, you know, when I, because I was four days a week on a client for three and a half years and you were, I think you maxed out at two and a half, three days a week maybe. Yeah. And it was pretty close to the same time that we both went off of uh committed client work obviously you've been pulled back into the weeds a few times since but um but our business has has not to be cheesy but it has amplified since the founders got off the client work and let's yep. be honest the people that do the client work now are far better than we ever were and I, and I do you know my last point would be I do tell people you know at the end of the day if you're the best person on your team do you have a job or are you a leader? Because if you're a leader, you shouldn't be the best person on your team. And you need to invest in process, training, uh, values, purpose that allow other people to be better than you. And when we made that leap, it made a tremendous difference. So I think I would reassure myself of that because that's been a big surprise for me, probably the biggest surprise. I think when I stopped working on client work, I thought it was gonna be like a couple months and then I'd be back. <laughs> And now it's been over 18 and it's no, paid no, off. No, you dread it. Oh, now I would never. I'd be, oh, my God. The client that ended up with me as a CFO? Poor thing. Anyways, that's a wrap for startups. Thank you for listening. And be sure to download that startup ebook and give us a call if you want to chat more about uh, the Amplify journey or, or the many client journeys we've had the opportunity to witness. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's with Amplify. We hope you enjoyed the show and got some value out of today's talk. If you did, we'd love to hear from you. We invite you to leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform or comment on YouTube. And be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to check out more information on all of our episodes and free eBooks, visit amplifyadvisors.ca slash category slash Let's Media. Production of the podcast is by At Heart Creative and can be found at atheartcreative.com.